Hello, and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole. And Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. This is your destination for conversations with the finalists of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, as well as interviews with book lovers from across the province and territory. My writing name is Gail Anderson Dargatz. Um, I've been writing for, it seems like a very long time now, about 30 years. My first novel was Secure for Death by Lightning, and my second novel was A Recipe for Beasts, and both of those books were shortlisted for the Giller Prize. I've had quite a bit of success with my novels. They've largely been national bestsellers. Uh, my most recent literary novel is The Spawning Grounds, and um, I'm about to release a thriller, a commercial thriller, which is something quite a bit different. And it's called The Almost Wife, and it's going to be out uh, this July, July 6th. And I also write high-low books. Uh, so these are high-interest, low-vocabulary books for both adults and children who are working on their literacy skills. So I have a whole bunch of those as well. And of course, The Ride Home is one of them. Gail is my guest for this episode, and she is the author of many books, including The Almost Wife. She also works with a lot of authors on their books, and blurbs books, and so on. So she knows a lot about characters in her books and those of others. And when I asked her if she could be a character in any book who she would be, this is what she said. Well, you know, I just finished reading one right now, and that's uh, Carla Funk's book, and it's called Mennonite Valley Girl. And it's actually a memoir. And uh, I was asked to read it for a blurb, and I actually fell in love with it. Um, and I think the reason I fell in love with it is because the character could have been me. I really related to the you know, Carla uh, and uh, herself as a young woman growing up in the BC interior. Um, it was such a nostalgic uh, journey for me uh, to go back to that girl I was uh, through Carla. I think, it, I think it will be that for a lot of people. Gail is the author of Ride Home, which is a finalist for the 2021 Sheila A. Egoff Children's Literature Prize. And she starts our conversation with a reading from the book. The bus ambles out of town, rocking back and forth down the highway. City transit isn't exactly quiet, but at least people keep to themselves. The kids on this bus, on the other hand, are nuts. Half of them are screaming at each other. The other, other half are yelling just to make themselves heard as they talk to their friends. One orange-haired kid is hurling bits of cheese. Cheese. The only kids who are quiet and keeping to themselves are the kindergarten kids right up front. Oh, and that weird girl in the third row. She's got these massive headphones, like noise-canceling headphones. I wish I had a pair. Gross. Now Jeremy and Sophie are really kissing in the seat. I mean, there's tongue action. Jeremy catches me squinting at them in disgust and disbelief. He stops kissing and gives me the stink eye. Do you mind, he asks. A little privacy, please. Privacy on a school bus? Then he goes back to snogging the girl. That's it. I am out of here. 
I grab my backpack and stand up, steadying myself with a hand on the back of a seat as I try to figure out who to sit with. A skinny kid with blue bangs shakes his head. Okay, I won't sit with him. A girl in yoga pants shifts towards the aisle. Her neither then. I take another step forward, but the bus careens around a sharp corner and I tumble over the seat and head first into emo. I find myself cozying up to Mr. Grim Reaper. Then the driver suddenly breaks, hurling me sideways into the aisle as she turns abruptly into a pullout. She gets out of her seat and stomps down the aisle as I pick myself up. Now that the driver is standing, I realize just how short she is. I'm sure some of the fourth graders are taller than her, but the expression on her face is just plain scary. Uh-oh, says Emo. Hey, the driver calls out, you, new kid. My name is Mark. Don't give me lip. I wasn't, I was just telling you my name. She tilts her head up to talk to me. Argue with me and you'll get a memo. A what? Emo nudges me. You don't want that, he says quietly. A memo is a note you have to take home. It says you got in trouble. Get three and you could be kicked off the bus. I've got two. But I didn't do anything, I say. The driver wags a finger at me. You got up and switched seats while the bus was moving. I do that all the time in the city buses. School buses? No, city transit. She pushes back her fedora. Didn't you read the bus rider's code of conduct? The what? The bus rules that the school sent home with you. I glance back at Jeremy and Sophie. They've stopped making out for the moment. I suspect they didn't get a copy of the bus rider's code of conduct either. Nobody sent anything home with me, I tell the driver. I just started school today. I lived in Vancouver until Friday. What happened, the cheese hurling kid calls out from several seats down. You get expelled or something? I scowl at him. None of your business. But cheese kid won't let it go. No, really, what did you do? You hit a teacher? I bet you hit a teacher. The driver reaches up to hold a finger to my face. On this bus, you don't get up and walk around while the bus is moving, understand? But they were making out back there. I wave a hand at Jeremy and Sophie. I didn't want to see that all the way home. Jeremy, is that true? The driver asks, don't lie to me. All I have to do is review the security footage to find out. She points up at the camera mounted on the ceiling above the emergency exit. Jeremy nods and mumbles. Then he pushes Sophie's legs off his lap and she falls into the aisle. The girl sheepishly gets up and slides over to the other single seat. This isn't the place for that kind of thing, the driver says. I'm separating you two. Jeremy, go sit in the front seat. He stands. With the kindies? No way. You want another memo? The driver asks. You get a third and you won't be riding this bus anymore. My mom will kill me, Jeremy says. Yes, she will. The driver gestures forward with both hands like a flight attendant to the front. On his way past me, Jeremy slugs my arm. You'll pay for this, he says. Once she gets back up front, the driver calls out to me. And you, now that the kids are quiet watching us, her voice carries all the way to the back of the bus. My name is Mark, I shout back. The driver snorts. 
If I know a kid's name, it's because he keeps getting into trouble. I can see I'm going to remember your name. So, Mark, if you do need to change seats, do it when we stop to let a kid off, but only with my permission. Understand? I look back at Jeremy's girl and the empty seat beside her. She glares at me. I'm not sitting back there again. Can I move now? I ask the driver. I'm curious a little, I guess maybe where I want to start is, how did you get involved and started in writing high-low books? And what interested you about writing that genre? Well, many years ago, I guess it's about 15, maybe closer to 20 years ago, I was asked to do a high-low book for um, its ABC Literacy Group. And they were asking writers from across Canada to to do books, a high-low book for adults, because they recognized that a great many people who were improving their literacy skills or were new to the country and improving their English were really struggling to find books that were aimed at adults, uh, but at a lower reading level. Uh, So I was asked to do that and I jumped on it because my mom did uh, literacy tutoring and I saw how important it was. And so I wrote that first book, which was The Stalker, and it was um, published by Grassroots Press. And uh, found myself both really challenged to write write the book because they were very, very hard to write. In fact, I found them harder to write than a literary book by far, because you really have to pay attention to every word uh, and have to explain any, any word or concept that is a bit more complicated. So they're a real challenge to write, but I also fell in love with the process of writing them and wrote some other ones. And then I started to write them for Orca. The first ones I wrote for them were a series of uh, thrillers. That's where I sort of fell in love with the thriller structure. I'd, I'd taught it for a very long time and certainly worked with a great many other writers who were writing thrillers. Um, but it was in the process of writing those three th- thrillers for or- Orca book publishers. And those were all high-low books that I fell in love with it as a structure that I wanted to work with. And that really started, that sort of planted the seed for me doing thrillers later. And, and, and I've just started doing that over the last couple of years. I saw you um, speak yesterday as part of the Federation of BC Writers, and you were talking about moving between genres. What do you enjoy so much about that as a writer moving? I mean, you write fiction, but it's all kind of you know, fiction has so many different gray areas. Um, What is it that you enjoy about exploring different uh, facets of fiction? As I said in in that discussion, um, I I think as a writer, you want to remain challenged. And and again, I've been writing for well over 30 years now. And I had been writing mostly literary works. And I've, you know, been known for my literary works. But I really wanted to try something different. You know, I think anybody in any career hears, hits that point where they just want to do something different. And I certainly did. And um, like I said, I fell in love with the structure, the thriller structure, and wanted to play with that. And so so it comes down to variety. Uh, It's just having new challenges, a variety in the kinds of things we write. And I think that's really important. I know a lot of writers hesitate to do that because we, we get known for doing one thing and reader expectations um, can be high uh, that you, you continue to write that one thing. But, but just for our creative lives, we, we need to try new things. And so 
I've I've always tried to do to do different things. And I started out as a poet, and then I moved to short story writing, and then uh, moved to the novel. And in the meantime, I was a small town newspaper reporter, and you know, and it went on and on and on, right? So I've tried a great many things, and I've always played with um, different structures within my literary stuff as well. You know, I in any given book, I would look to the thriller structure and romance. And um, we just talked about the save the cat structure, which is a screenplay structure, which a great many novelists use in, uh, in their writing to help them map out their books. So like I said, it's about play, you know, uh, making writing play rather than work. I think that's really important in our creative lives. If we make it work, then, you know, our writing stalls. Yeah. So in um, The Ride Home, the as we saw or heard in your reading, it mostly takes place aboard a school bus. What was it about a school bus that intrigued you as the, the primary setting for this story? Well, you know, I was one of those kids on a rural school bus and uh, I spent just about an hour, you know, more than an hour a day on a bus. And my own kids spent, you know, Oh, well over an hour a day on a bus, as a great many kids do. And, you know, it, it is a situation full of conflict. You know, as writers, we're always looking for situations where there's going to be the most conflict. And boy, I can tell you, there's, <laughs> there's a lot of conflict on school buses. And, um, you know, I remembered what that was like. And then, of course, when my kids were going through that, all those memories sort of tumbled back again, you know, those experiences of, being on a bus where there were food fights and uh, when some kid, you know, an older kid with a lighter was setting the seats on fire. <laughs> you know, there were kids making out in the back of the bus and, you know, throwing pudding and yogurt and all kinds of awful things, you know, and, and then being the weird kid, you know, cause I was the weird kid. I was the quiet, smart kid and trying to hide at the front of the bus with the kindergarten kids. And, um, you know, that never worked, you know, you're still a target of stuff. And it, you know, so that bus ride home can be really painful for a lot of kids. And especially if you're one of those kids that, you know, is maybe quiet and maybe easily overwhelmed by noise and all the rest of it, uh, that bumpy rural bus ride home is hell. So that says it's a really good situation for a, for a middle school book, you know, and that's why I settled on that as, as a situation. I was going to ask um, where the idea for the characters came from, but it sounds like many of these characters might have been on that school bus with you when you were a kid. <laughs> well, for for all the people listening that rode that bus with me, no, it wasn't any particular <laughs> characters. But, but, you know, kids are kids, right? And, um, you know, there's always the quiet, smart kid. There's always the, you know, the cool kid at the back. And, you know, there's the kids smoking in the back. And, you know, there's always the... You know, every generation has its own, uh, I guess, cliches. They're real people. And, th and that's part of what I wanted to get across with this book. At the start, all these characters are cliches to the central protagonist. And as the bus ride continues and as they have an accident, he figures out that they're a lot more than cliches. They're real people with real stories. And that was something I wanted, you know, to get across with this book. Yeah. Is it a challenge to, like, I find when I um, chat with uh, children's book authors who do picture books, sometimes there's that, there's a teachable moment. Um, 
Is that a challenge for you with writing high-low books compared to, you know, thrillers don't necessarily have a teachable moment, um, but is, is that something you're thinking about when you're writing these high-low books? No, I, I think it's actually a mistake for writers to to write towards a teachable moment or a message. I think that's a real mistake. Kids, kids sniff that stuff out, you know. Uh, I work with a lot of children's authors and, um, you know, that's the one message I, I work with them on is to, to avoid the message because um, what you want to do is write something that's entertaining, that kids can really relate to. And you want to offer enough in the way of conflict that they're going to get their own message or their own meaning through it. Um, you never want to plant it. You never want to write towards that. Otherwise, you, you get an earnest book. And uh, we don't want earnest <laughs> stories. <laughs> we want fun stories. Yeah. You know, we want to engage a young reader, make it entertaining and make it meaningful for them. Um, so, yeah, I try to stay away from a message. But, but that comes through any story on its own. Uh, so if I can make it fun, if I can make it funny, if I can make it entertaining, then, you know, a reader's going to find their own message in, in the story, something that comes from them. Yeah. Is the process for you as a, as a writer, like where the story comes from, is that different for you for the high-low books versus maybe your literary fiction? Or do they kind of all come from a similar seed pod? Well, you know, I think, I don't think we can hide who we are as authors <laughs> from, from a reader, you know, our own interests and our own personality and our own world view come through. And I've, I've often found that um, I'm repeating some of the themes and subject matter that I'm writing about in my larger projects within my smaller, you know, high-low books. Um, so, you know, if I'm interested, for example, I'm, I'm writing one right now that's, um, it's a thriller for adults and it makes use of drones because my husband is a drone pilot and uses them in his uh, teaching of GIS. And so um, that interests me. I, you know, I watch them fly all the time. They're really cool. They're fun to use. Um, they're spooky as hell. Uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> they're menacing. Um, so I'm using that in my upcoming thriller for adults, not the one that's out this year, but one that's coming out soon. And so um, that interests me enough that I want to use that in an upcoming Hilo book. You know, the story will be very different, but how I use that, you know, uh, that, I, that I'm using the drone, um, you know, crosses over into this other book. And I find that often happens that uh, whatever I'm interested in with my literary projects or bigger projects that take quite a long time to write will spill over into the smaller books that I do for uh, young adults. I'm curious about what it's been like for you with this book. Uh, it did it come? It came out after the pandemic, or did it? No, it was before the pandemic. Before, yeah. So, were you able to get some some classroom time in before? Were you able to share the book with students? No, before? No, not no. at all. No, yeah. not at all. It's been a very strange year. You know, we just uh, events pretty much shut down, and then of course we started doing Zoom events, but. It's just not the same, right? Yeah. You can only do so much with it. Um, I think people have been very inventive uh, in in getting books out there, but um, I'm looking forward to face-to-face -face events. Nothing replaces that. And getting getting into the classrooms too, talking to um, 
kids. And I also do a lot of um, events for adults with these high-low books, which I really find really rewarding because a great many of them, it, it will often literally be the first novel they ever picked up. Uh, so I'm hoping we can, I'm hoping we can get back to that soon. I think we're all missing that contact and, and um, you know, and being, being in front of an audience and, and just engaging. Yeah. I think it's interesting because with the audience for, for the ride home, it's kind of that that age where I think Zoom events for that, like an in-class Zoom event for that age group would start to be a challenge. Little kids just find it exciting, I think. Mm-hmm. I did an event with Monique Gray-Smith last year, and they were all showing pictures and like were just so jazzed about it. But maybe those middle grade readers are... Yeah, I think the middle grade, we've got to get on Discord. Forget Zoom. We want to be on Discord. <laughs> Whereas all my kids are all on Discord. So I'm on Discord too. You know, I, I think maybe we have to find ways to go where they are, you know, now rather than Zoom. But uh, like I say, I think um, I, I think we've been very inventive. I think we have to be even more inventive. But, but hopefully we'll be back in those classrooms within a year. I'm yeah. hoping. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the adult events you do with the Hilo books? I'm curious about that. Well, I'll often get invitations from uh, colleges where they're teaching literacy classes or literacy groups, uh, libraries where they have literacy uh, groups as well. And they'll just ask me to come in or these days, you know, do a Zoom event. Very often they'll have questions about, you know, how the book came together and about the writing process. And they're vastly different groups. Uh, Some of the groups are people who have just really struggled in school or they have been out of school for some time and are improving their literacy skills. Or other groups will be um, groups of uh, immigrants, recent immigrants who are coming in and they're improving um, their language skills. And so it it can be a very diverse group of people who are just improving their literacy skills and coming from all kinds of different backgrounds. And I find that really exciting and I really enjoy those events a lot and get a lot of feedback on, you know, on the books as well. Uh, Because uh, very often I won't recognize when a concept is more difficult, say for somebody coming into the country, uh, things that I take for granted about our Canadian culture. I should have done a better job of explaining it in a book. And I will just have not even a thought of it. So um, those those uh, events are always really eye-opening uh, for me as a writer. And I really, really enjoy them. Like I say, very often people will tell me that the book is the first one they've ever read. And it's got them involved in reading. You know, and that's just the best thing ever. Uh, so there, there's a lot of high-low authors out there who are doing writing for both adults and for, you know, kids. And um, wow, it's, uh, I think they'll all say the same thing that it's, it's just an amazing thing to have, um, to have your book picked up by somebody and have them uh, fall in love with writing, with reading, and uh, even try writing themselves. And that's, that's an amazing thing. Thanks so much to Gail for being on Writing the Coast. And thanks to you for listening and subscribing to the podcast. If you would like to learn more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, be sure to visit our website, bcyukonbookprizes.com. On our website, you'll find all of the information about the shortlisted authors, as well as details about upcoming events, 
like our storied series, and the project BC Yukon Book Mail. Next time on Writing the Coast, you'll hear my conversation with Junie Desir, whose book Eat Salt, Gaze at the Ocean is a finalist for the 2021 Dorothy Livesay Poetry Prize. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.